Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. We are here tonight with Steve Englehart, who, in my time reading comics as a teenager, I, you were my favorite over there, Steve. After Stan Lee, you did Avengers, Hulk, Captain America, Luke Cage, Doctor Strange, you name it, and then knocked it out of the park doing Batman, Justice League, and Green Lantern over at DC, too. So we are thrilled to have you here to talk about Captain America in this with the new movie coming out. So thank you very much. All right. Okay. Now, first off, I would just like to say that your tenure at Marvel began with Stanley just having left some of these books, Roy Thomas in charge, and you came in with that next wave of young guns, you, Steve Gerber, Marv Wolfman, and all those guys. What was the right. Marvel bullpen like in that period? What was that experience? Well, it was really a bullpen, because it was a very small company in those days, and everybody who worked for the company was, uh, you know, right there on the front lines. So, I mean, when I went to work there, Stan had an office. Roy had a desk in the in the sort of production area where there were three or four people who, you know, prepared the books to go out. Uh, John Romita and Herb Trimpey had desks there to kind of do art corrections and in addition to their own stuff. Uh, Marie Severin was there um, and then a couple more production people uh, and me. You know, I mean, that was that was pretty much, so what is that, like a dozen people at most. Sure. Um, maybe we'll actually throw in the, the production people. There might be 15 people, but um, small, functional, and, you know, the whole Marvel, this was 1972, so Marvel was just about to become the biggest company to pass DC. Um, that happened very early on in my career there i had nothing to do with it but uh i was there and so there they were the biggest comic book company in the country and they had like 15 people working in the <laughs> office so it, it really felt like a bullpen i mean i did you know everybody there was friends with everybody else you were running back and forth talking to people and and doing stuff just you know eight hours a day it was fun <laughs> That's awesome. And how did you end up coming to write Captain America? Well, I had, you know, I had uh, wanted to be an artist, and I had sort of worked my way up to be a low-level artist. And as I always say, since I didn't continue it, I don't know how good I would have gotten, but in any event, I didn't continue, so I never, never got to be fabulous as an artist. But I was on staff at Marvel, um, and Gary Friedrich... Um, was supposed to script a six-page monster story, and he didn't feel like doing it, so they kind of looked around that small office and said, you, there, the artist guy, why don't you see if you want to write this thing? And I wrote it, and I, I it was only six pages, but I enjoyed doing it, and they liked 
what I did, and in a small company like that, I mean, it's like there's no, you know, as soon as they go, ah, oh, this guy can write, then the next step is let's give him something to write. I mean, they didn't, you didn't have to sit around for a long period of time uh, waiting for decisions to be made by some hierarchy somewhere. So um, they started me out doing what people did in those days, which was work on the romance and the Western books, because if you totally screwed up, you wouldn't be screwing up Iron Man in the process. <laughs> and, you know, and they continued to like it. So then I got a chance to write The Beast um, in his own book, An Amazing Adventures, and they liked that. And so, like, it seems like about the next month, it was no more than like two months, I think. I, I, I wouldn't swear to that. But, but again, things move quickly. And, and so The Beast worked showed I could write superheroes and right after that I got Captain America and the Defenders both um and both drawn by Sal Buscema which was fortunate for me because Sal was an excellent um comic book storyteller and it made my job you know of learning how to be a writer a whole lot simpler to have a guy who could understand what you were talking about and give it to you you know um not all if you're working in comics, most people can do that to some extent, but there were some people who couldn't even do that. So, I mean, I've always been very, felt very fortunate to have started with, uh, with Sal Buscema because he was just a perfect partner in order to do those books. Awesome. And what was the kind of, I mean, right now Cap's a movie star, but what was the, this kind of state of the book when you took it over? It was, it was pretty dismal actually. Um, that's another reason I got it because I was the new guy on the totem pole and uh, everybody above me had sort of tried and, and not really found a way to make him work. And so, you know, the book was either going to get canceled or turned into a bi-monthly. The sales were so bad mm -hmm. on it, but they gave it to me. And, um, and I was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam war. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, a right wing guy by any stretch of the imagination, but the problem had been that people were against the war. The most of the Marvel, you know, teenage and college audience was against the war. And here was this guy who was standing up for America. Somehow or other, that never caught me between those two things. I just looked at him and said, okay, if he existed, who would he be? And that was the only thing that really interested me. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a political agenda to push or or to push or to avoid, you know? I mean, I just, to me, he was the spirit of America. Uh, it, I don't think it was instant, but I fairly quickly, well, it might've even been in the first series that I did, which was the fifties Captain America thing, which you probably want to talk about, but oh, yeah. um, uh, fairly soon it became clear to me that, that the way to do Captain America was to make him stand for the America we all learned about in school, the, you know, the American ideals and whatever Mer America itself was specifically doing at that time, uh, didn't really have to be anything that he had to worry about. If people were against what America was doing, he didn't, you know, he didn't have to suffer because he stood for something bigger than that. Um, again, all this is kind of organic. I, you know, I didn't sit down and consciously plot any of this out, but it just, you know, if I was going to make it work, I had to find a way to make it work, and that that worked, and it sounded right to me, too, you know. So um, within six months, then, the book was the number one book at Marvel. Books could turn around that fast because there were, you know, we were selling 
half a million, three quarters of a million copies of everything wow. every month. I mean, the, sorry, yeah. I'm just, you said I can ramble. So please, yes, ramble please, it's awesome. But, yeah. but, but books, you know, that is so half a million, three quarters of a million. The the cutoff point was three hundred and fifty thousand. If if sales fell below three hundred and fifty thousand, then you were looking at wow. cancellation or Amazing. some other, um, you know, adjustment. And and but on the other hand, selling all those books, we had you know they were still on newsstands, so they were available um, in a lot more places than when things moved into the comic book shop era later on. Um, so it was just, you know, it was so volatile that it was possible if somebody decided that they liked Captain America, they could tell their buddy that they liked Captain America, and that guy could go get a copy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's not like they were uh, in the stores today where people only order the same number of copies that have already been asked for, and if you decide to go down there next week and get something, you can't find it. Um, so anyway, um, by having an idea about what to do with him and you know and executing it um the book went from near cancellation to the marvel's top title and that certainly you know sort of established me as a writer at that point you know <laughs> i said oh okay well this guy this guy must have some sense of what he's doing so um cap was you know i was doing the defenders and i was doing other books in that time period but i mean it was probably cap that really kind of established my career you know hmm, absolutely well as you brought up steve your first arc on that was the cap of the 50s and what right. brought, what brought you to that you know the sort of correcting of stan's lapse in memory that cap had actually been around in 1953 well the idea was roy thomas's you know as he you Not know surprising, he was the editor-in-chief yeah. well yeah you know the he was the editor-in-chief and when he assigned me captain america he said here's an idea that you might, you know, if you want to run with it, try this. Um, that was the extent of it. I mean, he just said, you know, the problem is the 50s Captain America doesn't fit in the Marvel continuity. If you want to do something about that, go for it. Um, and I did. I liked the continuity. I liked the illusion that it was all real, you know. Um, and so I sat down. Fortunately, you know, I mean, again, now that I was – Working at Marvel, I was able to like get stats of the '50s books mm -hmm. out of the archives, uh, so I was able to read all that stuff. And I was, you know, I was struck by the whole anti-communist uh, thing. I mean, Roy's thing had been, what? How do you explain this guy when he doesn't fit into the current Marvel continuity? But when I looked at him and I saw the whole '50s anti-communist mm -hmm. thing, um, I thought, well, that's obviously very different from from anything that Cap is doing these days, and therefore the the um, the relationship between those two, if, you know, if I could explain how that guy existed, then the relationship between those two would be interesting. And, and so, you know, again, I just took that and started building on it. And, and, and there you were, um, I've just, you know, it's, it's just beginning to get reported this week that the next Captain America movie is going to be about that stuff, the fifties, Captain America and so forth, which is interesting. Yeah, what you, what's your take on that? That was going to be my follow-up question. You're way ahead of us tonight, Steve. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, Sorry. please. It's, it Are makes... we done? Can we, can we wrap it up? <laughs> no. Um, uh, well, I mean, all I know is that that's what they're saying it's going to be. Um, I think it makes an excellent arc. I mean, it's it's a good. They've done. Marvel's doing a good job on these on these movies. I think. You know. I mean, the, they um, 
they're executing the whole Marvel Universe thing in movie form. Um, and if I may say, like the second Thor movie was a perfectly decent movie. It wasn't a great, it wasn't a classic movie, I didn't think, you know, on, on any level as a superhero movie. So, but it was, you know, it was there. It filled its slot uh, entertainingly, and it kept, you know, it kept Thor around till the Avengers come back and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. But I think the Captain America movies, uh, at least the first one, I really liked it quite a bit. I haven't seen Winter Soldier, but, you know, nobody has, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, I just think, you know, in general, they have a clue as to what they're doing uh, down there. And and so uh, I'm excited to see um, where they go. Actually, I just read on the Internet this afternoon that the guy who plays Captain America wants to quit acting and direct. Um <laughs> He's he's under contract to do Captain America, so he's going to keep doing it. But otherwise, he he doesn't want to act anymore, which is an interesting interesting thing too. But um, I thought he was good. You know, I mean, I I liked that first movie quite a bit, the Captain America movie, and so I'm looking forward to Winter Soldier. And I think they'll do I think they'll do a good job. And and because the fact that it is the Marvel Universe approach, where the movies are supposed to like connect you know, linearly through the Thor series or the Cap series, but also across sideways through Avengers and stuff like that. Um, We did Captain America in the 40s. Now we're going to do Winter Soldier. And so, you know, getting the two Captain Americas uh, in the next movie, if that's, you know, if in fact that's what they do. um, I think, I mean, I I just have faith in them. I think it'll be, I think it'll be well done. And I, you know, I think it's an interesting story. So I have no idea if it's a, you know a direct adaptation of my stuff or or you know what, but uh, clearly it comes from that from that uh, from that arc one way or another. Um, but it's early. I mean, you know, um, so I, I I don't know really mm. where they're going to go with that. But I think it's I just think it's kind of cool because I thought I did like that. Uh, it did it, it it put me on the map which, you know, was all good for my career. But, you know, the reason that happened is because I liked writing the story, you know. So it's it's cool for me to, you know, to look forward to seeing it on the screen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a weird kind of providence. Like, I, I emailed you, and I think it, it, it they reported that, like, a couple of days later. I was like, well, this is, yeah. a, this is a nice little piece of <laughs> unintentional serendipity. Unintentional yeah. serendipity. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that that notice though, and I it was mm. a, a not even a silent. It was a loud yippee <laughs> in, in my house. That, that is my favorite story arc in Cap's history, Steve. I'm not saying because cool. you're sitting here. I actually have a, an article I wrote a year ago that, that counts that one. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I, I just think it makes sense in terms of the movies. I mean, they're doing the right thing by by going that route by because that's an interesting thing. You know, they have to explain it in the movie the same way they have to explain it in the comic, in a sense, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, um yeah i mean it's just i i think that the the relationship between the the purer captain america and the more ideological captain america will be interesting particularly i mean you know it it, it worked in the 70s it'll be interesting to see it work in 2016 or whatever yes yeah uh, absolutely absolutely um stephanie i know you we've been talking a lot about what what made it in the book stephanie you had a kind of interesting question for steve yeah um so when you were writing uh captain america uh, was anything that you wrote ever edited out? And if so, what is one thing that you had wished that they had left in? Um, I missed the part, something that was left out that you asked. Oh, sure. So when you were writing Captain America, uh, was there anything 
from the script that was edited out? And if so, what was something that you wish had been left in? No, actually, you know, they gave us complete creative freedom. I mean, and I've had people these days going, they just gave you Captain America and, and <laughs> let you do whatever you wanted to do. But the answer is yes. And that was true with all those books. So, um, you know, the writers were allowed to do anything, you know, that they wanted to do that wasn't going to get Marvel sued or, or you know, or, or defame somebody or whatever. And it had to sell and it had to come in on time. But I mean, if you can handle that, um, there was no, there was no buddy saying no, really, at Marvel. I mean, the option was there, and, and so the closest I came, when I did the Secret Empire thing, um, it was always, in my mind, Nixon as the head of the Secret Empire. And when I got to the end of it, I decided not to show Nixon, because I thought, <laughs> you know, that might get objections, that might make Marvel editorial uh, nervous. Um, and so I uh, self-censored. Uh, I couldn't tell you if I had used Nixon, whether they would have done anything about it. Um, but that was me trying to be a responsible, you know, not put them in a position where somebody might, you know, get upset about the whole thing. Uh, but I really don't remember any time you know, in that era when they, you know, when anybody said, no, you can't do what it is you're thinking of doing. Um, that was the, that was the way it worked. And it was also, I mean, again, if I'm, if I may say, I mean, I was, things were working well for me, so they weren't really looking for a, a, a way to jump in and, and, and get in my way at all. Um, but it was, it was, Marvel was the house of ideas, you know, <laughs> that's what it was supposed to be. That's really cool. So they just kind of trusted you to kind of do what was right for the story and go with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and when I, when I left and, and Mark Grunwald took over, I mean, it's, a, that was the deal. I mean, you, you got the series, it was under your care and control and it was up to you not to, you know, I mean, you can't screw up Captain America and expect <laughs> Marvel to be happy about it, but but uh, if you didn't screw it up, then you got to keep doing it. That sounds like a dream in these days. You hear so much about them being, like a lot of writers and artists being so edited. It sounds like, you know, something Well, that's of... why, yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I don't do it anymore. Um, that's why I'm out of comics, because it, it, the business isn't like that now. And, um, you know, when I first started really running into that, I said, no, I mean, when you get, you know, when you get your first job, they say to you, here are the rules. You have to show up at eight, you go home at five, you get a half hour for lunch, you have to punch the clock or, and you go, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's the rules. That's, you know, that's the job. In my case, the rules were you get complete creative freedom, you know, so it's like, it's hard to, to then accept anything less than that later. And now that it is, you know, I mean, the flip side of all these movies and stuff is that the whole business has become more Hollywoodized, which where there's more structure, there's more editors, there's more people giving you notes. Um, you know, didn't appeal to me, so that's that's why I I bailed out of it. But uh, uh, you know, for most, you know, I mean, up until up until the mid 2000s, I guess. Um, 
people still have you know still had the ability to do that. But after that, I said, nah, no, <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, now, in the wake of the Secret Empire finale, Steve disavowed his Captain America identity and became Nomad, the man without a country, which spoke so much yeah. to those of us who were disillusioned by Watergate and all that as a lefty from that period. It was like, yeah. Anyway, how yeah. do you think your Steve Rogers would react to today's political climate? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, my Steve Rogers, uh, everything that Nixon did that got him impeached, that mesmerized the country for the entire summer, uh, is legal now. <laughs> they've all, they, you know, they've made all that legal. So uh, now people can invade countries uh, based on the fact that they want to invade them, and uh, nobody goes to jail or even get look, gets looked at funny. So I would, you know, that my Captain America, you know, if he just sort of dropped out of the sky, would find that very difficult to wrap his brain around if you know if he was actually captain america he would have been living through it while it all sort of moved in that direction and so he'd he would have uh had a chance to adjust to it but i you know i'm i'm not exactly sure how to answer the question because i it, it is so different now um i mean he stands for what america should be and and um you know, if America isn't living up to that, he would be against it. But uh, um, the 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 stuff that the stuff that blew his mind is is like chicken feet yeah. <laughs> compared to what's going on since. So hard to say. Hard to say. Um, Steve, I've got somewhat of a two-part question for you. Uh, as, okay. a cre as a creator who's worked in the comics industry for a number of years and as someone who's witnessed many of its ups and downs, uh, what, in your professional opinion, has been instrumental in keeping the industry alive, and can we do anything to make it better? Um, well, I, you know, I think that, that the, you know, the run Marvel had in the Bronze Age... Um, satisfied a lot of people. I mean, there, there's a period from when Stan started in the early 60s until the late 80s, which is when I think the Bronze Age ended. Um, so close to 30 years, 25 years, whatever, a lot of people grew up and liked what they were seeing out of Marvel and, you know, and other comic companies, too. Mm -hmm. um, and those people are, you know, they're still, they're still wandering around here. So there was a lot of goodwill. The, the, but as far as making the industry survive, I'd have to credit, I'd have to credit the movies. Um, when, you know, in the seventies and eighties in that era, um, everybody who read comics liked comics and knew comics and, uh, you know, could live in a comic book, uh, they could, you know, there was a comic book world you could live in, but everybody who didn't read comics, refused to read comics. They all thought comics was children's crap and and the end of story. I mean, you couldn't say to them, look, why don't you read this Jack Kirby book and see what you think? Because they'd go, no, I already know that it's a piece of crap and I'm not, you know, I'm going to waste my time on it. Right. Um, so there was, you know, there was half a million, three quarters of a million, a million people who knew all about comics and then everybody else knew nothing. But when the movies came out, now 
everybody knows who Spider-Man is and who Iron Man is and who, you know, uh, the Avengers are and so forth. And yet the printed materials, uh, you know, as you know, aren't selling anywhere near 350,000 copies or anything else. <laughs> Not you know even I mean? close. Like, <laughs> right. You know, so, I mean, people are, it's completely reversed. It's, you know, like a lot of things that I seem to be talking about in this conversation. Everything has just, you know, <laughs> gone completely in the other direction since, since it started for me. Um, so, you know, now everybody knows the Marvel characters. They're shelling out 10, 11, 12, 15 bucks to go see the Marvel characters. Um, uh, and so that certainly is, has um, upped the profile and I think stabilized, you know, the whole thing. Uh, the movies have to continue to be good uh, the same way the comics had to continue to be good back in the day. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I would say that, that it's movies really that, that have really put comics, well, they put them on the map, but put them on a stable, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's Marvel got bought by Disney, you know, I mean, yeah. and some, and right after that they bought Star Wars and then they bought, you know, whatever else they've had. Um, I mean, Disney, Disney's a pretty savvy company and, and they looked at this and said, you know, this is something that this will be an asset to us as we, uh, you know, combine all these properties we have. And Warner Brothers has always owned DC. So um, uh, the movie, you know, it's 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 six of one, half dozen another. I mean, the movie business has made the thing much more stable and visible, but it's also made it more bureaucratic on the inside, harder to, harder to get your creative ideas out on the inside. So, uh, you know, I worked, I liked working in comics, in comics better in the old days, but I certainly appreciate what the new days are bringing to the, you know, to the marketplace. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Bob, Bob, I know is dying to ask you about some of your other some of your other work, he's he was all week. He was sending me like emails and questions. So Bob, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you do that. Ask some questions. Sure. Uh, first, one I'd like sure. to ask about is that to me, you presided over the first Marvel event, the Avengers Defenders War of '73. How did you come about doing that? Well, when I was a fan, you know, liking Marvel comics, thinking, "Gee, someday I'd like to work for Marvel Comics." Uh, they used to have annuals every summer uh, where they would throw in a new 40-page story or something, plus reprint something from the early days, which, again, you know, uh, even even though it was only 10 years in the past rather than 50, um, seeing, you know, Fantastic Four number four or something like that uh, was a very cool thing. So those annuals were a real special thing, I thought. And, and it's all they all came out in the summer, and I can remember sitting, you know, in really strong heat under a tree reading them there's all sorts of sense memories and stuff so when i was then working at marvel and i was writing both avengers and defenders uh you know roy came in one day and said that you know people upstairs had decided they weren't going to do any annuals that year and i thought well that's no good you know you got to have something going on for the summer and and so i thought well i could do the avengers and the defenders and and again, I mean, I went to Roy and I said, here's my idea. And he said, well, you know, if you're, if you're late on any one of those issues, you'll screw everything up because they come out, you know, sequentially. And I said, I won't do that. And he said, okay. And that was, you know, <laughs> that, was, wow. that was the editorial conference <laughs> on, that, in that, on that regard. Um, 
so yeah, I did the Avengers Defenders thing because I really just wanted to do something special uh, for the you know for the readers out there. I mean, I I liked it when I had been a reader and um, always sort of felt like I mean I can remember one day when I said I'm the only Avengers fan in the country who can't be surprised every month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I lost you know I I paid a price there too. You know, I lost something in the process there. Um, and it was, you know, so it was kind of that deal. I wanted, I wanted people to have a good time the same way I had people had given me a good time, you know. So, well, it was a great hook that you know Hawkeye had just left one group and hooked up with the Defenders. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the way that all worked itself into place, the obvious Cap Namor fight. But I was just showing Bobby the full page of Hulk Thor that Sal Buscema did which is still yeah, one of my just yeah. absolute favorite pages. And your, your captions help make that, you know, the two titans. and. Well, I, yeah, uh, it was fun working out who would fight who, you know, and how that would, how that would work. I mean, the, the, the battles themselves had to be interesting. The two battles in the issue had to play off each other. The, the whole thing had to develop the overall uh, structure of it. So that was all fun for me as a, as a guy, you know, trying out his wheels uh, with with the books and so forth. What could I do? How could I make it work best? Um, and, you know, I, I it all built up to the big Hulk Thor fight, and I thought, well, I don't even know who would win that fight, so maybe nobody <laughs> will win that fight. And, and, uh, uh, and then they show up and go, hey, stop doing that. We have, a, we have things to talk about. Um, yeah, it was... Yeah, I mean, there I was. I had all those characters at my control. It was, I, you know, I could do anything I wanted with them. So I was having a good time. <laughs> um, something I want to ask you about, because I think it's like an amazing little little known corner of the comic book world, is the the Rutland kind of Halloween parade crossover thing. Cause it, yeah. Because it, it, my, my father is actually born and raised in Rutland. So when I found out about this, I became like sort of obsessed about it. And I don't think a lot of people nowadays even know what it is. Like Bob had to fill me no. in on what it was. Can you just give us, can you just tell the listeners out there and tell us, give us what, what that was like and how it came to be? Well, there was a guy named Tom Fagan who lived in Rutland and, um, I, I'm not sure of all the details right at the beginning, but I think, Either they, you know, either they just liked to have a parade, a Halloween parade, or maybe the parents wanted a parade rather than letting kids wander around. I don't really know, but there was this parade uh, where people would dress up as superheroes, and this is, you know, long before cosplay. Um, I mean, if you went to conventions back then, you might see one or two people in a costume, but I mean, costumes were still kind of they weren't a normal thing really. And yet here was a whole town full of people in costumes because it was Halloween. So of course they could do that. So, um, again, I probably Tom Fagan sent an invitation down or something. I don't, because that was just before my time when they first started going up there. But I mean, uh, a bunch of comic book guys, Neil Adams, Danny O'Neill, you know, uh, others decided they were going to go up. Probably Roy was in the beginning thing too. Uh, decided they'd go up to Vermont. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I forget where you guys are, but but anybody who knows the East Coast, it's it's like a five-hour drive from New York up mm-hmm. to up to Rutland. I mean, it's not an impossible thing to go up for the weekend, and um, so they did. And and they came back, and Roy and Denny did a Batman story about the Rutland parade, and I think Roy did one the same same year. And so by the time I got there, it was like the second, maybe the third year 
that it was just a thing. You know, comic book people would go up there. Um, and so, uh, you know, I went. Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Jerry Conway, Glennis Wein, Len's wife at the time. You know, we went. Other people were up there. And so there was the parade through the streets. And then everybody would retire to Tom Fagan's. I don't think it was his house. I think he had rented it because it was a big, old, you know, scary New England house. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'd be this party, and everybody there would be in costume. And so it, it really was a, was a very different thing to be walking around a room full of Marvel and DC superheroes, mm-hmm. you know, dancing. Uh, <laughs> and and if you went outside, I, I went up to Rutland twice or maybe three times, and even though it's astronomically impossible, it always seemed to me that it was a full moon. It was <laughs> Halloween. It was Vermont in at the end of October, so all the trees were bare, and it was you know it was, you know it had a real sleepy hollow kind of vibe to the whole thing. So you, you could be inside at the party, you could go outside, and it would be quiet and cold under the moonlight with the gnarly trees and stuff. Um, all that stuff is reflected, I think, in the comic book stories that people did uh, out of it. Um, and, you know, and so, uh, again, it was an established thing, and, and I was going up, and, you know, I was a Marvel guy, uh, but Len was writing the Justice League, and, you know, somehow or other, I don't know, I couldn't tell you whose idea it was in the first place, but, but we came up with this idea, could we do stories that could stand alone so that nobody could give us a hard time and yet would fit together um, if you, you know, if you just sort of looked at it that way. And so that's what we did. I mean, Jerry wrote the Thor book. I wrote The Beast. Len wrote Justice League. um, And we came up with a storyline in which uh, all three of those books fit together. You can read them sequentially. we had, you know, we couldn't use the DC villain in the Marvel books and and vice versa and all that. So people would kind of wander from one story to another, but the wandering was was worked out and and you know the time frame, the time structure was worked out. And so that again was certainly me because I tended to do stuff like that. But it was all of us, you know, just wanting to see, you know, could we do this? Could we pull this off? So, um, but the Redland thing. You know, it was it was popular, and people. You know, after I moved out to California, I obviously didn't go to Vermont anymore. Uh, but I know people did go to Vermont for a number of years after that, and then eventually, you know, like anything else, it sort of died out. Um, but it was, you know, I'm just trying to think of how really to explain it. In those days, if you wanted to work in comics, you had to go to New York. I mean, there was no internet, there was no, you know, none of that stuff, um, no Photoshop. You had to physically, you know, the, the, everything was done sort of physically. I mean, I would, I, when I wrote dialogue on pages, they were the real pages. I, it wasn't scans of them or anything. I mean, the stuff got mailed to me, and then I mailed it to the next guy, and then, or whatever. Um, and it all, and so you had to be in New York to cut down on the travel times for mailing, and also, you know, you could get together. So everybody who did comics, with a very few exceptions, all lived in the New York area, and so you knew everybody, um, and you know, people partied around New York. They did, you know, whatever people do. Um, so this whole idea of like, let's all go to Vermont for the weekend. Um, there were a lot of people 
who were up for that. You know, they they were all there. It was easy to get up to Vermont. They all all could use a good party. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like so. Um, it it became like uh, well, like you know, right soon after that, maybe sort of simultaneously, the San Diego Comic Book Convention started, and when it started, it was held in a hotel ballroom. You know, it was nothing mm-hmm. like it is today. And a lot of people loved to go to the San Diego Convention because it was always sort of perfect summer weather in California, which people who lived in New York didn't get, you know, didn't really get as much of as they wanted. So there were things that were kind of on the social calendar uh, for comics, and and Rutland was just definitely one of them, you know. It was Mm. just something you did. You went up and and had a good party. I mean, it's it's such a, I mean, the the social aspect of it and, like, the actual, what happened in the books such an amazing that could not really happen today like there is no way you could get away with that kind of crossover today with the the two two of the biggest media conglomerates in the world owning the two companies but it's just like a wonderful piece of i think you know comic book uh trivia and good books too that you know i've read a few of the books and it's just a really cool thing i i do i you know we've talked a lot about the work that you've done and we could talk to you for hours i think there's i mean we haven't touched on huge things obviously that you've done in, in your career we didn't even we didn't even mention the name batman in this whole entire <laughs> conversation but um and so we'd love to one day talk to you again about that but i want to ask you about what you're what you're doing now like well, what 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 is steve Englehart up to these days well i'm writing novels now um when i decided comics wasn't going to work for me anymore um the only real place since i since i never pursued the art the only place i could go was in writing and so I went over to books. Um, so I've had a series that's uh, coming out from Tor, um, the Max August series. They are the Long Man, the Plain Man, and the Arena Man thus far, um, available from Amazon or your local bookstore, <laughs> probably Amazon. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, I miss the comics. I'm sorry that there's no pictures in this stuff and I you know and I know from selling these books that there are people who won't pick them up because they don't have pictures and I and I totally get that on the other hand uh, I get to write what I want to write you know mm-hmm. I get to tell stories with no editorial interference um, and so uh, you know that's where I've ended up telling stories in a different medium because the medium fits me better I mean which is what you have to do I mean wh- I was li- I mean I looked at your website and did some research before we had this this conversation. Um, what's Russell? Russell is a Christmas story. When I when my kids were little, um, I made up a Christmas story for them, and I wanted to um, I wanted to do sort of an Advent thing where there were twenty five chapters to this. You'd start reading it on December first, and you read a chapter a night through Christmas. Um, and I thought this is you know this is great. This will work. And I went and found a children's book agent and presented it to her, and she said this will never sell. And I'm like, no, no, it's great. She's like, no, that, you know, there's no market for this kind of thing now. And I said, well, it's kind of like this long, you know, adventure story. It's like the Wizard of Oz. And she said, nobody would buy the Wizard of Oz today. It's too long. Kids don't have that attention span. So, I, you know, I had to bow to her expertise. And she was right. And I ended up writing uh, a number of children's books on different subjects. Um, but so Russell just went back in the drawer. But I always thought it was a good idea. And when the Internet, you know, made it feasible i said well uh, actually my wife said why don't you put that on the internet and i thought well heck it's just sitting in the drawer i mean you know i mean i'm not getting paid for it that way so i might as well put it for free on the internet so russell is a is a story it takes place in 25 chapters about a christmas tree 
um, who comes to life. There's some elves and Santa's in it, and it's it, you know it's for kids, um, and it appears on my website every December 1st, and it vanishes from my website <laughs> when <laughs> Christmas is over. Uh, but I just put it up there every year and let people you know people who want to can read it. Awesome, awesome. Well, like I was saying, Steve, this has been uh, like fantastic to talk to you about this stuff and to, to talk about Captain, Captain America with someone who you know was there in the trenches writing the character. And like I said, we, we, there's so much other things. I mean, there's there's film stuff. There's more your, stuff about your books. There's animation. There's video game stuff. That all this stuff that, that you've worked on. You've had such a huge career, and you can no way you can possibly cover it in one interview. But um, we'd love to have you on again. But thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and donating your time and talking to us about this this great work that you've done sure well thank you my pleasure of course of course um so Stephen Lehart thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics <laughs>